This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So, as Sharon said, the topic tonight is wisdom. Wisdom is very important in Buddhist practice. It's very foundational, very pervasive. And there are many facets to wisdom, many ways to speak of it, uh, many of which I will get to tonight. So... I'll start with just a short reading from a Zen card. Treat everyone and everything with loving compassion. When you see no difference between the sacred and the profane, the saint or the sinner, that is the ultimate wisdom. So that may be a little surprising, may sound a little surprising to you. Um, No difference between the sacred and the profane, the saint or the sinner. I'm sure some of you have some reaction to that, as people always do. The important thing to remember is that Wisdom is broader than just dualities or broader than just knowledge or information. So when we say that there's no distinction between the sacred and the profane, the saint or the sinner, This is the wisdom that is beyond what we normally think of. So it's important to make a distinction, I think, between knowledge or information and wisdom. Wisdom, of course, encompasses knowledge and information, but it is more than that. It is broader. It's a deeper understanding than knowledge. Knowledge is very important in our relative world. Helps us to use our computers and our recorders and drive our car and etc. etc. There are many ways that we use knowledge and it's very helpful. Helps us navigate our everyday world. But it's also important to recognize that wisdom is beyond just information or just knowledge. Wisdom infers a deeper understanding, a deeper way of seeing things. So in Buddhism we say there are two arms 
the arm of compassion and the arm of wisdom. And compassion, you know, is also a very foundational um, practice. But compassion needs wisdom. The two need to balance each other. And wisdom is not wisdom without compassion. Compassion is a part of wisdom. So remembering these two arms of Buddhist practice. And of course, another way we think of wisdom is as one of the paramis, one of the uh, paramitas or perfections that you have been hearing about for the last 10 weeks. In a way, um, wisdom runs through all of the paramis. It's impossible to have or to practice generosity or renunciation or determination or any of the other paramis without wisdom. Wisdom we cultivate slowly over time. It's not something that um, you know, you hear me talk tonight and you go home and, okay, you got it, you're wise. <laughs> um, I didn't get here <laughs> overnight. Um, wisdom is something that we cultivate, that we practice. It is also something that grows with our practice. In a way, it can be considered a fruit of our practice. It's one of the uh, benefits, one of the things that we gain through practice. So a lot of wisdom in Buddhist practice is knowing what is skillful and what is not skillful. What will lead to happiness what will lead away from happiness or to suffering. And this is how we determine what action to take. Buddhism is not a belief system, a dogma, and there are no rigid rules, no have-tos. One time, uh, just last month, I think it was, I do um, uh, multi-faith panels, and I heard another person on the same panel was speaking about his religion, his practice, and he kept saying, we must, we must, we must, (laughs) and something in me just went, (laughs) we just don't say that in Buddhist practice. So much of practice is working with issues. 
Lama Suryadas suggests that perfections may not be the best word that practices, spiritual practice or transcendental practice is more appropriate because they are things that we practice throughout our entire spiritual career. They're not black and white. They're not, you know, you do it this way or you do it once and you got it. Just like the, the precepts, they are things to work with. So when we work with any of the paramitas, we do so learning to see, to understand what is skillful and what is not skillful, what is healthy or helpful, and what is not. And the Buddha always suggested that we need to check things out for ourselves. He said, he said on the night that he died, and he said throughout his teachings, be a lamp unto yourself. Don't take anything just because I say so or another teacher says so. Check it out for yourself. I think you'll find that this is true, but check it out. And so that's a lot of our practice, checking out the teachings. You know, does this really work in my life? Is this really skillful? Does this lead where I want to be going? So we learn to see how our speech, our thoughts, and our actions, and it's all three, lead us to happiness or lead us away from happiness. Um, In the Dhammapada, it says... All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind. Yes. The Buddha suggested everything begins in the mind. So we're not just talking about action or even just about speech, but our thoughts. Our thoughts direct us. Our thoughts lead us to skillful or unskillful action. So it's important that we pay attention to our thoughts and that we cultivate healthy thoughts and do our best to let go of the unhealthy or unskillful thoughts. So... We're talking about wisdom as one of the paramis or paramitas. And one of the important ways of seeing or understanding wisdom is wise view. Wise view is the first 
factor on the Eightfold Path. And the first two factors, wise view and wise understanding or wise intention, are the two wisdom factors on the Eightfold Path. So what does wise view mean? And again, there are different ways of speaking about wise view. Uh, Typically, we talk about wise view as being um, able to see the three characteristics of existence. And not only see them, but understand them deeply. So the first of these three characteristics is impermanence, anicca. The understanding and the realization that everything, everything in this material world is impermanent. And it's easy to say, yeah, yep, right, sure, I know that. But sometimes we don't remember that. Sometimes we forget that everything, absolutely everything, including ourselves, are impermanent. What has the nature to be born or to arise has the nature to cease or to pass away. And when we see that very clearly throughout our lives, throughout our everyday experience, that's, that helps us to let go of our clinging, our attachment, our wanting to hold on to things, to keep things just as they are. Nothing stays the same. <laughs> so I... I have a very personal experience of that just recently. I, um, I lost my dog of five and a half years. And uh, she was 14 and a half, but I had had her five and a half years. And of course, I knew, I knew all along that I would lose her one day. I used to say to her, <laughs> you know, what am I going to do without you? But you know, even though I knew it and I reminded myself, when the day came, it was not easy. It was not easy at all. And, you know, I feel myself wishing it weren't true wishing that impermanence (laughs) wasn't true. Even though, of course, of course, if we didn't die, how could the world support us? (laughs) How would we, um, would we want to go on living forever? Most people say no, they wouldn't want to. So even though we understand that doesn't make it necessarily easy 
when it happens. Not, not for a beloved pet, not for ourselves, not for anybody. But it does help, at least it does me, to understand that this is life. You know, I said to somebody recently, this is the price we pay for being born. You get born, you're going to die. You're on a trajectory. You love someone, be it a pet or a person or whatever, you're going to lose it. That's one of the facts of life. And so seeing that characteristic, experiencing it, understanding it, deeply develops wisdom. So as, as heartbroken as I am at the loss, um, I'm not railing against life. I'm not saying this is unfair, it shouldn't happen to me, why did this happen? You know, all the things that it's so easy to say that only makes us suffer. So from my pers- perspective, there's enormous grief but not suffering. I'm very, very sad. I know from experience I've lost many pets in my, in my life. Um, I will heal and there will be another one. Of course, death is, is one of the most poignant examples of impermanence. There are many, many others. Everything, like I say, that... Uh, that we possess, that we think we possess, will ultimately leave us. It'll fall apart. You know, we get a brand new car, we're so excited. It's not new for terribly long, is it? It gets in an accident, or it breaks down, or it gets a scratch, or whatever. That's the nature of our lives. And... If you look around, at least for me, it seems like so much of our culture is about not recognizing that fact or not accepting that fact. So we build things, we make things, we, we put things together with the idea they're going to last. Even, even our views or our understanding or you know, our knowledge, that's it, now we got it, that's how it'll stay. But no sooner do we say that, than it changes, right? Even science. <laughs> we think, yeah, that's how it is. We got it now. We understand, right? Yeah, ten years later, we find out, well, well, maybe it's not quite like that. Well, maybe it's a little different. So even our knowledge, our wisdom changes. And that's part of wisdom, that we understand that change, that we don't just hold on to something because that's what we learned and that's how it is. I, when I listen to the news and I hear somebody talking about, you know, it's not this way and it will never be that way, <laughs> I think, probably will. <laughs> as soon as you say never, you know, it probably will. So, impermanence, anicca. The second of the three characteristics, dukkha, uh, often translated as suffering, maybe uh, dissatisfaction. 
again, that's the nature of life. We try to hold on to things, thinking that they will bring us lasting happiness, that they are truly satisfactory, only to find out that eventually they're not. Everything, everything ultimately is unsatisfactory. Everything um, ultimately will betray us, will leave us. And so our, again, our clinging, trying to hold on to what is basically unsatisfactory, creates our suffering. So we learn to live with the understanding that nothing is worth holding on to because nothing will stay the same and nothing will bring us ultimate and lasting happiness or peace. Only freedom can do that. And then the third characteristic perhaps the most difficult one to understand, uh, to really get. Uh, Again, said in different ways, sometimes said or called emptiness, sometimes understood as non-self, insubstantiality. Again, the understanding that nothing, not even us, exists independently, separately, ultimately, on its own. Nothing. We are all totally interconnected, interdependent. We're a collection of relationships and um, experiences, But there's not a solid, separate, eternal something that we can call self. And again, even science is, modern physics is supporting that understanding. That nothing arises on its own. Everything arises from causes and conditions. Um, This and that, we say. This is because that is. That is because this is. When this ceases, that ceases. When that ceases, this ceases. A more complicated way of explaining it is dependent origination, which we won't go into tonight. (laughs) But the understanding that everything arises together Everything arises in relationship. Again, Lama Suridas says, the deep understanding of patterns and relationships, causes and origins, insight into the implications of our thoughts, words, and deeds. So recognizing Um, this interrelationship of everything and recognizing that our thoughts, words, and actions have an impact. We could say this is karma. 
karma really means action. And important for us to understand that our actions do matter. The most, the smallest action on our part can have huge rippling effects. So nothing is inconsequential. <laughs> nothing is, um, has no repercussions. Everything, every action, and that includes thoughts, has an effect, be it for uh, the good or the not-so-good, be it for the skillful or the not-so-skillful. So I got just a little bit ahead of myself um, and moved on to wise understanding or wise um, intention. The second factor in the, on the Eightfold Path. And as part of uh, wise intention or, or uh, wise thinking, is this understanding of interconnectedness, interdependence, understanding karma, that our actions do matter, and understanding the importance of intention, sometimes called motivation. Um, But just as I quoted the Dhammapada, that all experience begins with the mind, Um, this is the power of intention. What we think leads to how we act. And so being very aware of our intentions, seeing them, number one, because often we're not aware of our intention. Or sometimes we think our intention is one thing, And then when we look more carefully, or when something doesn't work out the way we had expected, we look a little deeper and say, oh, there was a deeper intention. And so seeing our intentions, and then also practicing setting wise intentions. Uh, Sometimes we have the intention to be kind. But then there are occasions when we're not kind. Why? There may be a deeper intention to get back (laughs) or to prove you wrong (laughs) or whatever else. Not something that's, you know, we're immediately aware of. It's a little bit deeper down. But when we see our behavior that's unkind, then we can begin to explore, investigate what is a deeper intention. Not in a judgmental way, not to make ourselves wrong, but so that we can develop then more skill. We can, we can see, oh, oh, a counter-intention. Um, that perhaps is not serving us. And then we can skillfully change that intention. 
So I mentioned kindness, and um, it's my understanding that in the Talmud, the, the Jewish um, commentary, uh, wisdom is considered kindness. So kindness, uh, also an important part of Buddhist practice. Helen Keller said, to be blind is bad, but worse is to have eyes and not see. To not have the wisdom to see what we in fact are seeing. So it's important in practice to know ourselves, to understand ourselves. Again, it said, knowing someone else is knowledge, but knowing ourselves is wisdom. And when we know ourselves, which we do through meditation and reflection, uh, speaking with others, then we can trust our inner wisdom. We can trust our intuition. You probably have often heard that. Trust your intuition. Trust your inner wisdom. And people sometimes wonder about that. Well, how can I trust my inner wisdom? How do I know that that is skillful or accurate? Well, a big part of it is knowing ourselves. When we know and understand ourselves, then we have the confidence to trust that intuition, to trust that, that inner wisdom. So, how do we cultivate or develop wisdom? Well, there are at least three ways. One is gathering the information, learning, uh, seeking out knowledge. But as I said, knowledge or information in and of itself is not wisdom. So then once we have the knowledge, we reflect on it. So we consider it, we think about it, we synthesize it, we check it out. And then the third is that we actually experience what we have learned. That is, we apply it to our lives. And that's how we check it out. If we apply what we have learned, to our life? Does it work? Does it bring us what we wanted? Does it bring us peace or happiness or the contentment that we so seek? We learn to abandon then what is not skillful, what does not lead us to happiness. And we learn to cultivate, to keep developing 
what does lead us to happiness or away from suffering. Suzuki Roshi said, it is wisdom that seeks wisdom. It is already the wisdom within us that is seeking wisdom. I find that kind of reassuring. Um, most traditions will say that that um, that the wisdom is already within us, and we have to find it, bring it out, allow it to shine forth. How do we do that? Well, I'm reminded of Jack Cornfield's book called The Wise Heart. Maybe you've seen it or even read it. Lovely book. <clears throat> and one of the chapters in his book is called From Delusion to Wisdom. And what he talks about is seeing our delusions. We all have delusions. We all have misunderstandings about ourselves, about life. We all miss interpret things. And when we do, we say that we are deluded. It's not a judgment, it's not a criticism. It's just seeing that, um, that we are not seeing things clearly. <laughs> so again, uh, well, before I say that, uh, so often all of us Something happens, and we create a story about it. Well, she said this because, or he did that because, da-da-da-da-da. And sometimes we can build quite an elaborate story and either be very, very hurt by it or very, very angry or whatever. And then maybe at some point down the road we discover it wasn't true at all. I had, I experienced that. Somebody did that to me many years ago. I had set a lunch date with somebody and, um, and I was teaching in Redwood City and I told her that and, you know, we made the time as close as I could probably get there uh, knowing that I was teaching and who knows how many questions and et cetera, et cetera. And I was 15 minutes late. And she was livid, mostly because she was so disappointed and felt that I was being disrespectful to her. And I tried to explain, you know, that what, it, what was happening, that I thought we both knew that. And, you know, she never, never really forgave me, never uh, got over it. And from my perspective, none of it was true. You know, it was simply what happened. I had no reason to disrespect her. And when I met her, you know, I was kind of smiling and, hi, glad to see you. And then, <clears throat> and then later she threw that back at me that I was just laughing at her. I wasn't laughing at her. I was just, you know... That's, I say that because that's how 
we can develop a story and then hold so tightly to it. And even when we find out maybe that wasn't true, we still hold on to it. That's delusion. (laughs) So I started to say I had an experience like that, again, with my dog. Um, When I took her to the vet last Thursday, you know, there were two or three things that were said that happened, and I built up this story that they knew my dog was going to die very soon, and they didn't tell me. And so yesterday I was there, I was talking with the vet, and, and I said some of that. I said, well, you know, this happened, and, and you knew that I wouldn't be back on Thursday. And he kind of frowned. He said, no, no, we didn't know that. And I gave another example where I had done the same thing, and again he went, no, no. <laughs> After practicing Buddhism for 30 years, I went, oh, Brigitte, you just did it. You know, I made up this story. They knew that my dog was going to die very quickly, but they didn't tell me. (laughs) Well, no, they didn't. They knew that she would, you know, that it was shortening her life, but they didn't know it was going to be in the next five days. So the important thing with that is, um, well, it would be nice not to do it in the first place, but we all do it. So having done it, have the wisdom to say, oh, there, I did it again. Let go of it when I find out that's not what was true for them. That's not what was going on. They were not covering something or being duplicitous or whatever. So that's how we can move from delusion to wisdom. When we find that we've created a story, that we're misinterpreting, misunderstanding something, we can say, oh, oh, that was a story I made up. That's not true. Let go of it and be open. And you've probably had the experience, as I did, it's so freeing. You know, it's no fun to think people are (laughs) misleading you or whatever. It's very, oh, oh, that was a figment of my imagination. What a relief. And that's what Jack says. When we realize delusion and we let go of it, it's such a relief. There's a sense of freedom. I don't have to hold on to that, you know, that thought or that belief or that understanding. So, as I said, it's important to remember that wisdom develops over time. That we don't just all of a sudden have wisdom. And so we shouldn't expect it. We should understand that it's practice and questioning and checking things out that over time develops wisdom. Wisdom is a deep understanding. And it doesn't come easily and it doesn't just come from hearing what 
somebody else says. Jack says, delusion misunderstands the world and forgets who we are. Delusion gives rise to all unhealthy states. Free yourself from delusion and see with wisdom. So when we free ourselves, when we recognize delusion and let go of it, that leads to wisdom. And wisdom is freedom. Wisdom is the answer, the antidote, the, single, the simple medicine that relieves all ills and afflictions. So I think I'll stop there for a bit and see if you have questions or comments, discussion. Okay, let me um, let me just end with a brief reading from the Dhammapada. This is from the chapter on the sage. One who drinks in the Dharma sleeps happily with a clear mind. The sage always delights in the Dharma, taught by the noble ones. Irrigators guide water. Fletchers shape arrows. Carpenters fashion wood. Sages tame themselves. As a solid mass of rock is not moved by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise or blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the Dharma. Virtuous people always let go. They don't prattle about pleasures and desires. Touched by happiness and then by suffering, the sage shows no sign of being elated or depressed. So we understand that both pleasure and pain are part of life. And we don't get, I mean, we're not emotionless, (laughs) but we don't get tossed about when there is pleasure or there is pain. It's like, yes, you know, yep, well, I know that's how life is, yep. Yeah, shall we sit for a minute? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.